0: The Dynamic Deputies. Hello and welcome to the Dynamic Deputies podcast, run by two deputy heads living on opposite sides of the country. This is our first recording of 2022, Steve, and under a new podcast name.
1: Hi, Russell, and a warm welcome to everybody listening. Yes, we've decided for ease that everything we do in the future will now be under the Dynamic Deputies name, but the podcast itself will continue in the same way it always has, with lots of brilliant guests planned for the coming months. And we're delighted to be launched in 2022 with a returning guest, aren't we, Russell?
0: We are indeed, Steve. Today we're joined once again by John Walker, Director of Sounds Right. John spoke to us back in April of 2021 all about phonics, which has become our most listened to episode of all time. It was the most tremendous piece of CPD for us and our listeners, so we're very pleased to welcome you back again, John.
2: Uh, good evening. Well, thank you so much for inviting me back again, it's very kind of you to uh asked me to come along and uh, talk about morphology and etymology. More about morphology than etymology, I think you'll find along the way, but I think we can weave some of the etymology in as we, uh, as we go along.
1: Oh, Thank you, John. And honestly, we're so looking forward to discussing etymology and morphology today. Um, but given it was quite a while ago that we last spoke, we thought we'd do a bit of retrieval practice for our listeners about a previous conversation we had. Could you perhaps give us a brief summary about the principles that underpin the Sounds Right programme, as I suspect there'll be useful reference points for people during today's discussion?
2: Yeah, sure. In summary, really, I think the most important points I would make are that we've been talking for well over 100,000 years. I was listening to somebody the other day, actually, talking about how early australopithecines learned how to make stone tools. And in order to do that, they were positing that perhaps it would have required a lot of language in order to be able to teach this skill, a very highly skilled craftsmanship in going into making these flint tools and so on with which to skin animals. Well, okay, so we've been talking for well over 100,000 years at least, I think we can all agree, but we've only had a writing system or writing systems for about 5,000 years. And the other point I wanted to make was the pressure that uh, caused writing systems to be created was that move from agricultural communities, small agricultural communities, what I call the process of villagization to towns. And actually I was delighted to see on Twitter before Christmas, somebody who was teaching history actually teaching their kids that between that area of the Tigris and the Euphrates in the fertile plain in the Middle East, that was where agriculture began. And in fact, that's where the first city uh, rose up. And of course, if you're going to be able to run a city, you need a writing system in order to make it work. So we can uh, thank the Sumerians for this. Certainly two experts, William Bright and Peter Daniels, are of the opinion that nobody learns their own writing system without being taught. You learn to speak naturally. You don't learn a writing system unless it's taught explicitly. And even even though you hear people quite often saying, oh, yes, I learned to read and I did it all on my own. And uh, how do people know below the age of seven how they learn to read? I mean, you know, it's almost impossible to uh, remember all the, all the influences that people had on you. So one of the things that I think we privilege at Sounds Right is that we make sure that we teach the code, of course, and a lot of people, I think, uh, focus an awful lot of attention on the code, I think we also focus a huge amount of attention on the skills needed to be able to use the code in the first place. I don't know whether I mentioned it last time, I can't remember, but it's a bit like, you know, looking at the rules of cricket and learning all about how you play cricket, but never having been out there and actually practiced it. (laughs) Possibly the England team need to practice a bit more at the moment. But anyway, <laughs> I don't want to say that. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, in addition to that, of course, what's also important is conceptual understanding. And we make a big thing of conceptual understanding, making sure that the children that we teach understand the way in which the writing system works. So these are the things I think that uh, we've always foregrounded really in Sounds Right and talking about Sounds Right to People.
0: Thanks, John. That's a really helpful recap about some of the principles of Sounds Right. So, today we're going to be talking about etymology and morphology. Could you please explain what we mean by each of these terms?
2: Yeah, well, uh, I mean, briefly, I'm not going to say very much uh, more than simply that uh, etymology is derived from the word (laughs) etymon. And I love this etymon line, which I think is a very clever combination of these two words. Etymon means actually primitive. Word. All right. Yeah. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I have to put my hands up and say I didn't know this myself until I really looked into it. I know bothered looking into uh, the derivation of etymology, just the words that I suppose come under that sort of heading. Mm. Yeah. So etymology it means true, real, or actual. So I'll be talking a little bit about it as I sort of proceed with the talk. But uh, what I'll start with, I think probably is uh, let's start with morphology. And morphology, of course, is the study of form or shape. It's derived from the Greek word uh, morphe. And of course, we know that ology, we append the suffix ology to all sorts of things, the the study of. So I think I'd like to ask to start with really uh, a rhetorical question, really, as I'm going to answer it. (laughs) So what kinds of morphemes are there? There are free and bound morphemes. So free morphemes are able to stand alone and make sense on their own, whereas bound morphemes are not able to stand alone or make sense unless we bind them, as the the name suggests, to other morphemes. So let me give you an example. So Russell and Steve, they love creating podcasts, uh, but John loves listening to their podcasts. (laughs) Good to hear. So... Your intuition, I think, would probably tell you that uh, the words, that both are variations on the same word. And in fact, you find that the pattern there that you see love and loves is something that's a general pattern. I think of the forms in English, uh, you know, you see that this pattern, of course, reproduces and applies to many other forms of the ver- verbs in the present simple tense anyway. So, love, of course, is actually a separate word and it's a word that can stand alone. It's a, a free morpheme. And the addition of the what I'm going, to, I'm going to speak now in written form, the hyphen S is a bound morpheme. And, the, and we indicate the addition of the bound morpheme by showing it with that hyphen. So morphology is a study of the form or structure. And it's all about how words are formed and what their relationship is to other words. So in fact, very quickly, we stray into the territory of grammar. And I'll give you some examples of that in a minute. So English is inflectional. So it adds suffixes to indicate tense in terms of verb suffixes or verb forms. And it, it indicates plurality in terms of nouns. There are a number of different forms, of course, that we can see that uh, are inflect. So we add that S form in the third person singular for he, she, and it. And we also add ED forms for simple past tense forms. And we also add ING forms as well for the present continuous, although we can also add it for what we used to call gerunds or verbal nouns. Walking is good for you. So you could see that as an inflection as well. It's also agglutinative as well, or it's a fusional language. So there are all sorts of spaces in words where we can add bits to change meaning. And of course, we've added all sorts of meanings to words over centuries. So how many... Uh, word families are there somewhere around 30,000 somebody estimated, but actually there are probably as many as 250,000 separate words. I mean, people come to different numbers on these things. But anyway, I mean, the idea is that in fact, you know, you can take a simple word, you can add all sorts of things to it, and you can change the meaning. I think one thing to bear in mind, and uh, this is something that David Crystal reminds me of every time I read him, and that is that children come to school knowing about three quarters of the grammar of the language. And they certainly know this addition of the S in the third person form and they use it without even thinking about it. So it's a real win-win situation if you show them because very often they'll be quite unaware of the fact that they're talking and using this form Mm. that, for instance, John loves listening to Russell and Steve's podcast. So although they'll be familiar with the form, they may not be consciously aware of it, if you see what I mean. Mm. So making them conscious of it is a win-win situation in the sense that when teachers decide that this is the time now that children are ready to be apprised of this form, then they can show them that, well, this is where we add this s at the ends of nouns and this is where we add the s at the ends of some verb forms. The same is true, really, of ing forms as well. So when you've taught the sound, and this is why I think it's not good, some people think that it's a good idea to teach morphology before you teach phonics. You can teach ing forms after you've taught the sound ng. So if you teach the word sing, s, e, ng, which for you guys is probably three sounds. For me, it's four, because I actually normally say the sing And you can hear the g at the end of my word there. So adding ringing or singing is really relatively easy. And you can start talking about how these things combine as well if you feel that children are actually ready for that. So... The question I guess a lot of people would ask is when do you start introducing these things? And to be honest with you, unless I was actually teaching a particular cohort of children, I wouldn't be able to say with certainty. Obviously, you test the water, you see how it goes down, and obviously you build on that if you're able to. What's interested me an awful lot lately is the number of people who are teaching modern foreign languages in primary school already, and also the number of people who started to introduce Latin Mm. into uh, the primary school. And of course, one of the things that children are going to see immediately is the difference between what they have to learn when they're learning a foreign language and what they have to do. Uh, And it can be pointed out just how very simple English is when it comes to inflections. Because Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking that if you're learning, say, Spanish, You'd have to learn camino, caminas, camina, caminamos, caminais, mm. caminaron. Uh, sorry, caminan, I beg your pardon. If you're learning Latin, you'd you'd be ambilo, ambulas, ambulat, ambilamos, ambulatis, ambulant. So my Latin master would be very pleased with me if he could say <laughs> that now. I don't think he'd believe his eyes or ears or something anyway. So you can see straight away that there's quite a big difference there. And obviously, this is something that you can be talking about to show them that structure, in fact, is very important, understanding how things work. The point isn't just to be learning these firms and, and reciting them verbatim without understanding. The important thing is to understand as well how it all works, which is why that sounds right. We've always set so much store, really, in showing children how the alphabet code works conceptually, too. Now... Moving on to derivational morphemes, derivational morphemes really do change the meaning of a word. So you can add all sorts of derivational morphemes to words. You can add them at the beginning and you can also add them at the end. And some of the examples I thought of were, well, I I think they further divide as well into English, if you like, or older English prefixes and suffixes and neoclassical prefixes as well. So to mention a couple of the English prefixes, again, it's a win-win situation because everybody is familiar with these words. Bound morphemes like after, bound morphemes like back, examples like dis and un, which actually change the meaning of a word fairly substantially. And also, of course, then you've got the neoclassical ones like ambi. Both, you know, ambidextrous, ambivalent, and so on. And again, we have to think too, when we're teaching this sort of thing, how pronunciation changes too. So ambidextrous, ambivalent, uh, you know, you might be placing stress on a different part of a polysyllabic word. So the things that as well that are commonly taught these days, I've seen uh, quite a few times on Twitter, just lately, how people are using things like bio for life, this commonly comes up geo, or I would say if it was added to graphy, I would say geography. (laughs) Many young people these days say geography, I see g as uh, spelt g e. So there you are, I mean, there's there are things like spelling you can talk about, and I think that's uh, it's a very useful way into it as well. So write geo or jo refers to the earth or the surface of the earth. So geography, geology, writing the earth, the study of the earth might be particularly relevant in key stage two. So, of course, there are others, uh, poly, many, ultra, beyond. If any, anybody who's worked in Italy will know immediately what ultra means, Beyond, usually beyond the pale, in reference to Italian football fans, uh, supporters <laughs> of uh, Milan and, and so on. So in terms of prefixes, there are about 35 English prefixes and something over 100 neoclassical prefixes. And these aren't difficult, really. M- many teachers will be well aware of a good probably 50 percent of these already so it isn't as if they're going to go have to go out and learn them Mm -hmm. these things are things that you can pick up as you go along but what is important to 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 make the point about really is that teacher knowledge is incredibly important Mm. and teacher knowledge is something that you can bring out at any point so let's think about then how you might (laughs) apply this and I think that some I think people sometimes want to look at morphology and etymology just in terms of spelling. I think you can talk about morphology and etymology at any time. So, for instance, if you've got some child who says to you, please miss, you know, uh, I I need to go out today at 11 o'clock. I've got to go and see the orthodontist. So using that as an opportunity... To talk a little bit there about these word combining elements, I prefer word combining elephant, uh, 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 elements. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sometimes to uh, word combining elements to prefixes and suffixes because also means correct. Don is Greek for tooth, and uh, tist or ist is something we tack on to indicate a person who does something. So oh, you're going to the orthodontist. And I imagine that they're going to correct your teeth in some way. And this is how, you know, you can write down orthodontist and so on. And um, later on, if you think that this is something that's important, you can talk about spelling it. But also, of course, is going to come in handy for all sorts of things. Orthography, for instance, which is correct spelling. So I was talking to my daughter one day and I was saying, she thought this is years ago now. She thought that spiders and ants, well, she thought that spiders were insects, the same as insects. And I said, No, no, that's, that's not right. And we had a bit of a look at it. And I said, uh, However, they both come under the heading of arthropod. Oh, right. Okay. Arthropod. So uh, I said, Arthro means jointed, and pod means leg. So arthropod animals with jointed legs, crabs, spiders, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, creatures. And immediately she flashed out, well, ah, right, arthritis. That's it, absolutely. So itis is inflammation, arth, joint, inflammation of the joint. Mm -hmm. So kids are really adept, I think, at you know, putting these things together and using them. Yeah, so one example that uh, I wanted to bring out now is that um, you might or might not want to use this for spelling purposes, but certainly in a class that I was teaching in Australia one time, the word rhinoceros was a word chosen by the teacher. Rhinoceros, lovely word. So that I started off by talk, saying to them, well, what does rhino mean? Do you know? Does anybody know what rhino means? And people were a bit quiet for a while. And somebody ventured that, uh, of course, when you're talking about these things, they're, they're sharp enough to say it wouldn't come from Greek, would it? Yes, well, actually, it would. Uh, so, um, so, yes. And what does it mean? And they say, well, it's the animal. I say, no, no. It, 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 in Greek, it doesn't mean the animal. Can anybody guess what, it, what uh, rhino means? Ah, no, well, nobody knew this, you see. Of course, they would have known if they'd been into those old hospitals. Mm. Because if you went into old hospitals, you don't have ears, nose and throat. You had otorhinolaryngology over the, you know, the head of whatever section of the hospital it was. And oto was uh, ear, rhino is nose and laryngology, of course, or larynx is throat. So the study of ears, nose, throat. So rhino is nose. Right, they said, and seros means horn. Very logical, really. You stick those two together, it's the animal with the the horn on its nose. And immediately some child said, oh, yeah, triceratops. You know, the, the animal with three horns. Oh, fantastic. Wonderful. So I think kids are very quick to put these things together. But in terms of spelling it now, if you want them to spell it correctly, then that's a different ball game completely. In a way, especially with a word like that, because when people talk about it uh, and say it um, normally, they usually say "rhinoceros." <laughs> Rhinoceros. So that's a three-syllable word. But if you're asking them to get their heads around spelling it correctly, then it's much better than to take it in terms of its syllables. Mm. So, rai, no, se. Ross. Mm. And even then, people will spell it rhinoceros with a US, that's very common. Mm. Adults often spell rhinoceros, US at the end. So unless you're paying attention to these things, of course, one of the things that we do in Sounds Right, and one of the things that we've been doing now for some time in running a year's three to six course, which we run for people who've already done the basic Sounds Right course, of course, it needs to be underpinned by a lot of knowledge about how phonics works, how we syllabify words most successfully in a way that helps us to remember, first of all, how to syllabify them, but also what the difficult bit in a word might be. So in rhinoceros, what's the difficult bit in that half a dozen hands go up? It's the r, the R-H spelling. Okay, fine. That's the thing that you're going to have to pay attention to. Any problem with not? Mm, And oh, no, of course, they're looking at the spelling of the word syllabified lines drawn in between the syllables. What about se? Well, mm, I might spell that with us. And of course, if you're saying it rhinoceros, then it's a schwa. Mm. Mm. And "rus" is also the vowel in that is a schwa too. One of the reasons why people say rhinoceros is because that. First schwa is so reduced as to create an elision. You just jump over it because, I don't know, you don't hear it or you can't be bothered to say it anymore. Well, I'm not saying you can't be bothered to because it's perfectly natural to say rhinoceros. But if you're spelling it, it's much more helpful to be saying rhinoceros and say it very precisely in its syllables as well. So all of that stuff is uh, incredibly important. So I guess one of the questions that you will want to know is where does all this fit into the curriculum? And of course, what teachers have to decide is what's the purpose if they're going to talk about morphology if they're going to talk about etymology and etymology is very exciting really lots of kids get off on it they think that it's fantastically exciting it's fantastically interesting and of course you can take these bits these bound morphemes and you can stick them on all, all sorts of other things and if you know what they mean then that's going to help you to work out the meaning of lots of other words So if you know that bio means life and you know that graph, it refers to writing, you know that a biography is writing about probably someone's life, that kind of thing. And these generalize across, I would say, across the whole of Key Stage 2, certainly maybe quite a few of them can come in useful in year two as well. I think there are plenty of classes that have children that are are likely to be very interested in this kind of information and it's going to help them to read probably informational texts as well as um, novels as well. So I'm going to stop there for a second and ask you if there's anything you'd like me to uh, elaborate on or, or say more about before I go on. The only thing I was thinking John is how we can um, explain how
1: it can benefit the comprehension aspect in more detail if that's possible.
2: Okay, so uh, you want to know more about how this can benefit uh, comprehension. And I'm going to refer to the book that we use. We've literally got hundreds of pages, which we offer to teachers who come on our course. And I'll give you a flavour of what it looks like. So what we've done is we've taken a familiar and commonly featured prefix, such as auto, for instance, And what we've done is we've given the meaning of that, so self, by oneself, of oneself, and we've taken the word underneath autobiography, which is a noun, and we've given that information. It's from the Greek autos, meaning self, plus bios, meaning life, plus graphia, meaning written, record or account. So the meaning is a written account of someone's life written by that person. Then we've syllabified the word as well underneath. So, or, to, by, gra, fee. And of course, the syllabification doesn't fit with the way that uh, the morphology works. So, teachers need to be aware that if you're syllabifying these words and looking at them in terms of their spelling in order to make sure that children spell these words correctly, that's a different kettle of fish from looking at the morphemes themselves because auto splits into two syllables or toe and you might need to focus a little bit on the or the au spelling of or there okay so we've got other things uh, that are related to that so there's autobiographical autograph and so on and we go on to autofocus <laughs> autograph automated automatic, automatic pilot, autonomy, autopilot. So all of those things. And then I will pick up on this other one because we look at by then, meaning two, having two, twice or double. And amongst other things, one of the most interesting thing for me in uh, the selection that we have here was the word biped. So, okay, biped is pretty simple, pretty straightforward, bi, to, ped is actually uh, a Latin derivation, pedis is Latin for foot, as opposed to pod, which is Greek. Of course, we can play around with this an awful lot, can't we? So a gastropod is an animal that walks on its stomach, so you've got snails and all sorts of creatures like that, and cephalopod uh, an animal that uh, what is it so so it's head and foot at the same time an octopus I think or is a cephalopod a, No a cephalopod I think is um, yes it, it must be a, an octopus I think so.
0: I'm certainly persuaded but I don't
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay I, I, I'm not I'm not quite exactly sure I think so. but anyway, coming back to biped for a second so by to uh, ped uh, feet. So a biped is a creature that walks on two feet, as opposed to a quadruped, which will walk on four feet. And there's lots of things that we can include in that. So we syllabify biped. Is there a difficult bit for you in that word that you might find difficult to spell if you are having to spell it? Well, I think most people by this time, most children, if they've been doing sound right anyway, should have absolutely no trouble with biped uh, whatsoever. But then we've included lots of things like nuggets of language nerdiness.
0: I love that. <laughs> well,
2: I can't claim credit for that. I'm afraid it's a, a Tita Bevanism, my uh, wife, uh, uh, you know, who's um, a language nerd. <laughs> she came up with it. Nuggets of language nerdiness. And kids really do like this stuff. So we, can you give some examples of bipeds? And she's given humans, kangaroos, ostriches. Now, I'll tell you what. Recently, I did go into St. George's Church of England school in Battersea, and I was working with the year three class, and they were looking at biped as well. So I said, Look, do you mind if I stop the class for a second to so the teacher? No, no, go ahead, go ahead. I said, OK, what's the fastest biped on the planet? Well, this damn kid <laughs> said, It's an ostrich. Unbelievable. <laughs> and everybody nearly fell off their chair. because, in fact, actually, he was absolutely right. Uh, The fastest biped on land is, in fact, an ostrich, and they can run at, I think, uh, 70 kilometres an hour. So there you are. They can outrun a cheetah. That's brilliant. So
0: what I'm hearing from everything you've said, and by the way, while you've been speaking, I have been listening, but I've checked, it is a cephalopod, you're quite right. right?
2: Like?
0: You're a bang on, <laughs> I've, I've double checked that.
2: Okay, I, I'm
0: glad about that. <laughs> yeah, that can stay on the podcast. So what I'm hearing is etymology and morphology are part of this broader picture of understanding language, appreciating the, the history and meaning of language. You've clarified there, John, I think, that you're saying that, while morphology in particular can be helpful in some parts for spelling, it's not a replacement of the sounds right approach of breaking a, a spelling down into syllables and spelling each syllable. So it it, it may be that common sort of prefixes or suffixes are useful and you'll sort of you'll come to recognize those as, as part of a spelling strategy, but they're not a replacement for that breaking things into syllables. I think that's an important point because I know. One of my initial misconceptions about etymology and morphology was, well, we'll do phonics up until, I don't know, lower key stage two somewhere. And then we'll do this impressive stuff around etymology and morphology. And from talking to you, and we had a phone call last week about this as well, I've come to really understand it's not at all that, that these things are running parallel to our teaching of and, and can be introduced pretty early on at an age-appropriate um, way. Is, is that an accurate summary of some of the points you've made there?
2: Absolutely, absolutely right. And it applies right the way across the curriculum, the primary curriculum, the secondary curriculum. I, I think, as I've mentioned before, actually I used to teach for the Open University and uh, I often used to point many of these things out to people in an, in an attempt to help them to remember it, to link it to something memorable for them. Mm. But also... To give them something which they could transfer to other words that they may not know the meaning of, or may not think they know the meaning of immediately. Mm. But once they've um, twigged, they can apply it to other things, and and, and things become much clearer. I guess
0: wonderful. So the next thing I was going to ask you, John, and it may be that you've already touched on some of the examples you wanted to talk about, were there any other examples, uh, real-life examples of morphology and etymology you wanted to discuss, or have we done them? Have we gone through all of those? Well,
2: I I think, uh, you know, we talked about arthropod. Arthropod was an interesting one, wasn't it? Because jointed, leg, pod, Mm. actually, this is a podcast. I wonder why it's a podcast. Is it leg? Well, I was wondering that as you were talking
0: earlier. I was thinking, I've got a leg something. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. must be to do with projecting something out so now i'm desperately sort of trying to listen to you and google search the etymology of podcast oh i tell you where it's come from go on it's come from the ipod term i believe so it's kind of a it's a dodgy bit of etymology there so it's not being used in terms of that it's just a reference to the ipod generation and, and casting to do with obviously broadcasting right so actually it's a it's a, a modern bit of strange etymology that I don't think there's a real connection beyond beyond the iPod world
2: yeah that's that's right and, and things like that creep into the language all the time don't they so uh, and many words have a plurality of meaning so dog can mean a four-legged uh, canine beast or it can mean to follow someone or you know something like that so and, and of course the two are related in some way but yes uh, words do uh, acquire different meanings as time goes on. So I I think uh, a lot of this also plays into the kinds of things that people are teaching as well. I think if you're doing, uh, somebody said to me not long ago, do you think it's worth doing Latin? Well, if you're teaching Latin uh, and you think that it's going to make children more intelligent, I think the answer to that is no, it won't. But certainly, I think many of these root words, the language contains so many of them, that it's certainly going to help with understanding Mm. and also transferring across to other words as well. And particularly, of course, these bound morphemes, of which there are, as I said, around 100 uh, neoclassical ones. So if you know what these are, then you can be using them all the time. Mm. Uh, So when I'm teaching, for instance, I know that if I'm teaching, uh, it doesn't really matter what it is, I, I suppose, if you're teaching a word like chemist, the children will immediately know that the ch representing the sound k is likely coming from Greek. So if I say it's the Greek spelling, so chlorophyll, what's the first sound you hear in chlorophyll? It's k. Okay, which language do you think it comes from? <laughs> it might be Greek. Yeah, you're right. It, it might be Greek. So what spelling is it? It's a CH spelling. Well, good, well done. Great stuff. So you're using this kind of thing all the time and you're building up that bank of knowledge that I think well teaches teaches children a, a hell of a lot actually over time. Now, one thing I'd, I did want to say something about is. Where do you go if you say, OK, right, it's a, it's a darn good idea to be teaching all this morphology and etymology and so on. I'm really excited about etymology. I like it. I'm sure it's going to turn a lot of my kids on and so on. Where do I start? Well, the answer is really, I think either you teach stuff randomly. So you pick and choose. So I could sort of turn my page over and I could say, OK, what about poly? Uh, Well, there's polymath, polysyllable, polytheism, post and and all sorts of things like that. Well, I can do that. Is it likely to stay in long term memory unless I keep recycling? I doubt it. It's probably going to be there and gone. Maybe it will make sense to some children. Maybe some children will relate it to something that they already know. But much better, I would have thought, really, to be teaching this kind of stuff in a systematic way, which is why we've come up with this very long list of words, of definitions, of derivations. They're all syllabified and there's extra information about them, about the way that you might introduce them and teach them, which I think is also incredibly useful and is likely to save time for... Uh, busy teachers that's very
0: helpful john and i was just going to say a, a simple piece of work that my assistant head did at our school is to look at our unit overviews for the wider curriculum because this does all enhance i think you said on a phone call with me last week this this comes hand in hand with a really knowledge rich curriculum doesn't it it works well with that We've looked through our curriculum overview to so some science units, history, geography units, and just where there's been a really obvious link to some etymology that the children will just find interesting. We've exposed it. So simple example being year six recently, talk, uh, electricity, talking about resistance yeah. and just happened to look up, oh, what's the etymology of that? Oh, resist air. It's a, it's a Latin word meaning to oppose. Yeah, well. That's just a really interesting that actually enhances their understanding of the scientific concept to so talk about that so it that was that just seemed like a, a a missed opportunity if we didn't do that
2: yeah no absolutely i I think so and of course if it's uh, if it's contained within a, a schema a body of work then it's much more likely to be remembered isn't it mm.
0: yes mm. absolutely
2: so uh, I, 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 I think it's a terrific idea and I think probably one of the things as well that teachers ought to be working on uh, as well when that when they create these Uh, These schemes of work uh, within the curriculum, they need to be thinking about what they need to light on and examine and analyse what might be useful to carry across into other subjects and so on and so forth in terms of, you know, morphology and etymology.
1: Well, I mean, I'm sitting here, John, and I'm reflecting on a staff meeting I did back in April. Where we did, we went into etymology and morphology with the staff, and the enthusiasm was amazing because it's genuinely interesting. It's mm. really great to expose teaching staff to etymology and, and really think deeply about the language. But whilst I'm doing that, I'm sitting here thinking many of us didn't study Latin or Greek at school, or maybe we never had a teacher who spoke much about etymology and morphology within the lesson. So If I wanted to improve my subject knowledge, what is an easy way to do this? And how much do I really need to know as a primary teacher to get me through?
2: Well, I mean, the short answer to that is, uh, (laughs) is there a short answer to that? (laughs) Well, uh, I mean, certainly it's pretty easy to learn the uh, prefixes and the common prefixes and suffixes. And prefixes and suffixes don't, generally speaking, constitute a real problem in terms of spelling. If you want to know something about etymology as well and where these words come from, I think then you obviously need to delve more deeply. So I can give you the reference after. I've got a couple of books that I've, I've used for years and years now. They're fantastic books. They go right back to the last century, the end of the last century, before, you know, we had all this online stuff. But etym online is a terrific source, Mm. and will give you all sorts of information. So you can learn this stuff as you go along. Or if you've got particular enthusiasm for it, then you can, um, if I give you this link, uh, after the podcast finished, then uh, perhaps you can pass it on to other people. But uh, The books I use are absolutely fantastic. I find that they're very, very useful. However, unless you've had an education in classics, then it's going to take time, Mm. obviously. And I, I was looking at the beginning at somebody talking about subtraction, you know, and looking at the tract bit in the middle there. And I was thinking to myself, oh my goodness, you know, I know it because it was part of my school education. And it comes from trajo, meaning to drag or draw, traho, trahari, traxi, tractum. And it just trips off the tongue because I learned this so well. Our Latin teachers made us learn this uh, so well that we can remember it to this day. And um, and it is incredibly useful stuff to know. But how long it takes somebody to learn all that stuff, I don't know. A long time, I guess. I guess you've got to do a course, a course <laughs> in it. But otherwise, I mean, I do think it's very easy to look this sort of stuff up. As you go along, apply it to the curriculum that you're teaching. And, uh, you know, if, if you've been teaching for a number of years, you're going to pick it up as you go along.
0: And I think it's a bit of a mindset thing around being curious, isn't it, Steve? Right. You know, if, if this stuff starts to be a more common feature in your teaching in your school and you want children to become more interested in words, you just kind of have to model that yourself as well, don't you? If we don't know something, let's look that up. I wonder what the, the, the meaning behind that word is. And that's where your working walls and things can be really helpful, can not they, in English to pop that meaning up and then when another word that's similar comes up we'll put that up on the wall too that just develops that intellectual curiosity in children i think
1: yeah absolutely and i know when i did the staff meeting russell mm. the enthusiasm for the staff was um they, they were creating ways that they could go down this avenue with children such as put out the working wall and really dissect words and then have like a kahoot quiz about wording around the what they're studying at the time and mm. It's when you see those little light bulb moments from the teaching staff that you just know that will be infectious to the children. And like we've spoken about today, and John, you mentioned it a lot, children are great at forming these links and seeing where words come from. So it's one of those that could just spiral and snowball in something great where they're really looking at language for what it is.
0: Yeah. Kids get excited by this stuff, don't they? Mm-hmm. They they get as nerdy as we do about the things that we get excited about. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I heard from a teacher just at the end of last term. They'd started doing what we call the extended code for the first time, and they discovered... There's more than one way of spelling the sound A. In fact, they've been taught four. And you know what? Some of them done. Some of them had gone off and said, hey, and there's this one, and there's this one, and there's this one. I didn't know that there was more than one way of spelling the sound. And of course, you set them off on a journey. Once you've established the concept, hey, you can spell a sound in more than one way, one to many principle. Then you can generalize that right the way across the spelling system. Mm -hmm. And similarly, just to take something as simple as perhaps, uh, I can't remember whether I talked about this before, that you can spell a sound with two letters. Now, a lot of teachers forget that once you've taught double F, double L, double S and double Z in the context of CBC words, they forget that you can carry on using that stuff. Mm -hmm. And certainly they we make something of it when we're teaching words like ship or chop or or whatever. But it works in exactly the same way for pterodactyl. So we've got pterodactyl... How do we spell it with a P-T? It's the P-T spelling. And then you don't need any of this other rubbish about, you know, this letter is silent and <laughs> this letter is friends with this one and this one is holding a gun to this one's head. <laughs> of you know, you just don't have any of that nonsense. It's perfectly easy to understand. And, uh, and I think that kids absolutely love that. It also, I think, helps you to see it in pterodactyl, for instance. So wing is terror, isn't it? And dactyl is finger. So the animal that flies around with a great long finger, you know? And you start to see that as being a unit uh, in its own kind. And I think it probably helps you to remember it. Absolutely.
0: I really like that as a final example to end on, because it sums up the conversation we're having here, where the phonics was still really useful there for spelling that word. But how much has their understanding been enhanced by that simple bit of etymology and the morphology of those parts of the word being put together? I really like that as a final example, John.
2: Thanks. Well, it, it's it's nice when it does come together like that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah,
0: very much so with a, a winged creature. Perfect. <laughs> John, it's always a delight to talk to you. And we're always open with people that we we love what Sounds right? Right's about. It makes a lot of sense to us logically. Mm. And I do encourage people if they're they're wanting to develop their professional understanding of etymology, morphology, and most importantly, phonics, to explore Sounds Right, because, you know, I've been exposed to different schemes over the years, and I'm not going to discredit or be negative about any of those other ones. But Sounds Right was the has done the most for my actual understanding of our writing system, its history, how it all comes together. And Steve and I often confess to the fact that as upper key stage two teachers predominantly, we can have quite a narrow lens on things like phonics. But we both said that last year's discussion about phonics really opened our eyes. And now when I'm thinking about spelling, when I'm covering in year six, I'm not thinking about, you know, applying my own odd strategy that I do up in key stage two. I'm thinking about phonics, still applying to these more complex words, polysyllabic words. I'm using exactly the same principles that my year one teacher's using, just with more complex words. So that's been a real revelation to me. So I encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that phonics episode if they kind of need to brush back up on that stuff as well. I feel like these two episodes hand in hand are a great bit of CPD for any of our listeners. So really appreciate your time, John.
2: That's great. And thank you once again for having me on. Thank you. Real pleasure. Thank you so much. The Dynamic Deputies. Mm-hmm.